What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Really excited uh, every single time we come to you with uh, See It to Be It. Uh, but you, as you know, you should know anyway, if, unless you're a first time listener. This is not the Zach show, right? We have different series on the Living Corporate flagship podcast. And uh, if you didn't know, I'm about to tell you who the host is. Amy C. Wanager. Amy, what's up? What's up, Zach? How are you? Oh, boy. Let me tell you something. It's hard out here. It's hard out here. It's it awesome. is hard out here on these streets. I it's agree. hard out in these streets for real. Like, it's ridiculous. I don't I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but you know what? I'm thankful. And I think, you know, the, the very the very reasons for my exhaustion go into why I'm really excited and thankful for Living Corporate as a media network. And I'm thankful for you and your, your contributions here. You know, I didn't even come up with the name or the format or the idea for your series. So how about you tell us a little bit more about See It to Be It and what it is? You bet. Well, first I got to tell you a little about me. So, you know, it's funny to me that I am um, the host of a, of a black podcast because I am a white woman from Southern Indiana. And the reason I wanted to do this show is because where I grew up, there were not a lot of people who went to college and stuck around. And I didn't know what people did that had college educations and, you know, professional jobs, careers. Most of the people I knew worked in factories, worked in retail. You know, I thought the finance majors were the tellers at the banks. I thought the people with engineering degrees drove the trains. And I'm not even kidding. This is like really what I thought. And when I went to college, I had no idea what kind of jobs were going to be out there for me. And I got to thinking, you know, there are a lot of first generation college students, a lot of first generation professionals, Zach, like me and you, you know, in your target demographic for living corporate. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be great if we could show young people, young professionals and college students, what are the options out there? you know, depending on what you're interested in and what really gets you going. And so I wanted to create a series where, you know, young black and brown professionals could see themselves in the future in all these different roles, because I think it really matters to have role models that look like you, that come from where you come from and that you can identify with. And so that's what we're trying to create here. And so then let's talk about that a little bit more. So like who, who have you been talking to on the See It to Be It series. Oh my gosh. I've Well, I've talked to a lot of people in the insurance industry because, you know, that's where I come from, right? A lot of people in insurance. And it's funny because, you know, you walk down the streets of your neighborhood or, you know, in my case, it was a gravel road, right? I didn't see people being underwriters and actuaries or the president of a bank or, you know, chief diversity officers of hospitals or, you know, people who are, you know, high powered consultants or, you know, I recently interviewed someone who is a foreign language speech coach who lives in Taiwan. And I think she grew up in Philly. And so it's, you know, there's just all these jobs out there that who knew, right? <laughs> who knew? It's crazy. I mean, as someone who's been like listening in and like really been enjoying See It to Be It, I'm just so taken aback at the vocational diversity. Yeah. Right. Of your guests. So let's talk a little bit about who the guest is today. Sure. So today's guest is Chuck Self. And Chuck works at a company called iSectors. Now, I didn't know much about iSectors and I didn't know much about Chuck's job before we started talking. But like, if you've got a, I always call him my money guy, right? Like it might be a guy, it might not be a guy, but I always talk about my money guy. And I give a cut of my paycheck to my money guy and my money guy invests it for me. 
and he invested in a lot of different funds, right? Like mutual funds and I don't know all the stuff, right? I'm just trusting that my money's going somewhere good. And if you're like me and you don't understand that, you're about to understand a little bit more because Chuck actually is the guy that sets up these funds. That's so cool. You know, we talk about wealth management and, and or building wealth and financial upskilling and, and education. But again, what I really appreciate about, and we're going to get into the interview in a little while, but what I really appreciate about folks who are really in the spaces that they break it down, they make it approachable and accessible for you. And so I'm really excited about folks listening to this. But before we get there, we're going to tap in with Tristan. So check this out. This is the flow, y'all. We got intro, talk a little bit about the guest. We're going to tap in with Tristan. After we tap in with Tristan, we're going to get into the interview and then we'll be back. See y'all in a little bit. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. This week, let's talk about some of the reasons you weren't offered the job after your interview. Are you landing interviews but not being offered the job? If so, believe me, you aren't alone. Since an average of three to five job seekers are offered interviews for open positions and only one person can get the job, most people don't get offers. In working with people who've been in this exact spot, I've learned some common reasons why. The first reason is that it really has nothing to do with you. There are so many reasons you didn't have a chance to get the job from the start. Sometimes there's an internal candidate they've already settled on, but their company policy requires they interview external candidates during the process. Other times, you're coming in late in the interview process and the hiring manager has already made a decision on which candidate they want. Sometimes, situations change the company's direction and focus, so they decided not to move forward with hiring for that position. Throughout this process, we have to accept that there are just factors that are out of our control. The second reason is that you need to develop an interview strategy and or brush up on your interview skills and etiquette. Have you ever just winged an interview? Most of us have, but that's not helping your chances at all. Take the time to prepare by researching the company and the people you're interviewing with to find ways to make connections and develop good questions. Also, something may be off about the way you're presenting. Maybe you didn't dress for the occasion, your body language is off, or you're simply distracted, fidgeting, or not providing enough eye contact. It's important to practice interviewing with a coach, friend, or family member to catch some of these errors. If you don't have anyone available, set up a camera, record yourself answering practice interview questions, and then watch the video to see what changes you might need to make. The third, and possibly one of the more common reasons you aren't the person getting the offer, is that you haven't reflected enough on your experience to tell the story of your career adequately. Many of us are so caught up in the day-to-day of our jobs that we often don't readily recognize the impact we make, which means we tend to have trouble conveying it to others. You have to take the time to build up your story bank of answers that showcases you as the best candidate for the role. By telling good stories about your experience, you can paint yourself as the solution to whatever problem that company is trying to solve by hiring this person. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list of what might be going wrong in your interview process, but they are some of the top reasons you may not be making it through the process. If this is a common occurrence for you, you might want to find a coach or someone you know who is a hiring manager to help you identify what changes you might want to make to increase your chances of landing your ideal role. Thanks for tapping in with me this week. I look forward to talking to you next week. 
This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Chuck, thank you so much for joining me on See It to Be It. How are you today? I'm doing well, Amy. How are you? I am doing great. It is so nice to meet you. And, you yeah. know, a lot of my guests, I I have known prior to our interview, um, but you and I connected because of the interview. And so I'm right. really excited to learn all about you, as I'm sure our listeners are, well, are as well. Thank you. Just start by telling us, first of all, you are Chief Operating Officer, Chief Investment Officer, and Chief Compliance Officer at iSectors, LLC. Can you tell us what Mm -hmm. iSectors does? And I'm assuming since you have three job titles, they're paying you three times, right? (laughs) Yeah, three times um, a relatively uh, modest amount. Okay, (laughs) perfect. But if you can kind of break down what each of those roles looks like for us, and, um, sure. you know, then I can kind of dig in from there. Sound good? Yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. So iSectors is located in Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, so we're in the frozen north. And our goal is to try to get financial advisors to outsource their investment management processes to our firm. Financial advisors have a, a wide range of responsibilities in order to serve their clients. And the investment management part is something that uh, for uh, relatively modest fees, they can outsource so that they could spend their time doing the financial planning work that is so important uh, in a financial advisor relationship. They could spend time getting new clients, which, you know, that's always good. And then they have to run their businesses uh, also. So we find that financial advisors, in order to grow, have to decide to do what they do best and outsource the rest. And we're there for them to do that on the investment management side. As far as my roles are concerned, they overlap in, in, in many ways, so they're not quite distinct. But starting with uh, the most important, Chief Operating Officer. Chief Operating Officer acts like the president. I run the the firm on a day-by-day basis. Uh, it's It's my main job. And I have the employees of the firm all report to me. So I'm involved in all aspects of the firm, and obviously the investment side, but also marketing operations, personnel, and everything it takes to, to run a successful business. The chief investment officer is the person who has ultimate responsibility for the investment management processes that goes on in the firm. We have 21 different allocations that financial advisors can choose from. And so what we do is uh, we have a constant schedule of reviewing the allocations, trying to make sure that we have the best securities in them at all time. And, and then obviously, at the end of the day, we hope that we have performance that's pleasing to our financial advisor uh, clients. Remember, our clients are financial advisors, not the actual end clients. And then chief compliance officer is uh, uh, probably the, the least fun of the job, and, but, but also very important. Uh, we are regulated. We, we are registered investment advisors with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And because of that, we have 
uh, filings that we have to make on an annual basis. So if anyone went to the SEC uh, website, they could see those filings for iSectors LLC. And then we, uh, as time goes on throughout the year, we also uh, have to have internal records to show that we are in compliance in case the SEC decides to come in and, and audit us. So we have a major compliance manual. We have compliance around trading to make sure that uh, our clients are getting the best ideas before we personally take advantage of it and, and other things that have to do with compliance. So it's really a, a fun job because it's so multifaceted and I never get bored. I would imagine that's a lot of responsibility. And how many people does your firm employ? Well, the iSectors part of the firm has four of us. We also are allied with a local wealth management firm called Sumnick Dent Associates. And so we get services from them. First, it's payroll or accounting. And both firms are owned by the same gentleman, Vern Sumnick. And so we try to be as efficient as possible. And again, even in our firm, we, we do what we think we do best. And then we outsource uh, everything else to either our sister firm or outside firms. Very good. And so the people that report to you are all investment managers. Is that correct? They're investment managers and they're marketing people. Okay. Uh, so we have people that it's important, obviously, that uh, have people to do the research on the investment side. And again, because of all my roles, I can't spend full time doing that. So it's good to have that capability in, internally. And then people have to learn about us and we have to distribute our strategies to financial advisors. So, so we have people that are dedicated on that side. And then, of course, in this day and age, uh, that also includes social media and websites. And so it's a, a, a fun thing to be part of. Yeah, marketing is becoming more multifaceted every day with every new social media uh, channel that becomes available, every new meme, every new niche. But I want to talk a little bit more about the financial side. How did you get involved in this work to begin with? Did you, when you were little, you always wanted to to work in investments? Were you like checking the stock symbols in the paper every day, you know, from from early on, or was this something that you found later in your life? Well, I knew about the stock market because uh, I'm a I'm a numbers person, and of course, uh, I grew up at a time where there was no internet, uh, and so. Uh, the daily newspaper was interesting to me, even at a very young age, and, and the two most interesting parts of it were sports and business, because those were the, the parts of the newspaper that had numbers in it. So I learned uh, how to uh, calculate batting averages uh, as far as sports are concerned. And then when I was old enough, I actually took books out of the library to understand uh, what the numbers meant in the stock market. But it was just something that I, I wanted to know. And, and uh, actually, my undergraduate degree is in accounting. So I was planning to be a CPA eventually. Tried it for a little bit and decided that's not what I wanted to do. And I was able to get an MBA from the University of Chicago. And my MBA was in statistics. And so, again, I have a pretty good numbers background. I was very fortunate because... I could never have afforded the University of Chicago at the time. It had this outrageous, outrageous tuition of $5,500 in 1979. And, uh, <laughs> That's one and, credit hour and now, so, right? 
Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just finished writing the last check for my last daughter for graduate school. So, oh, congratulations. Uh, I, I know how much it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I get a pay raise. Um, but anyway, the only way I could have afforded that was to get a scholarship, and I was very fortunate that the Northern Trust uh, in Chicago gave me a scholarship and actually a little extra money to spend and they took care of the housing and everything. And between the two years I went full time, they had they gave me an internship. So when I did this internship, they put me in the trust department in the investment area and I decided I, I like that. And so after I finished school, I started at the Northern Trust and I've been in the business for almost 40 years since then. That is wonderful. And so when you were coming up in this work, what kinds of environments were you in? Were you in a lot of welcoming, receptive environment? You know, I have this image, having worked in IT and worked in insurance, that I'm imagining, and please correct me if my, if my stereotypes are wrong, that folks in this field are probably very introverted, by and large, right? That it's just very heads down and, you know, maybe not... You know, they probably don't throw parties when people join and that sort of thing. So can you just talk a little bit about the work environment, kind of your experience in that? Well, uh, people that get attracted to the investment field, you know, like the numbers. They like immediate feedback because you get it every single day. And ultimately, you still have to uh, be kind of focused if you're going to be very successful in this field. There are tracks in the field in which you could just sit in your office and sit behind your desk and, you know, come up with great ideas and uh, make it from there. But for the most part, the people who do the best have a combination of this deep uh, ability to understand the numbers and what they mean and then be able to translate it to clients and and communicate it uh, to others. And I found very early on that I was good at that. I didn't know I was good at it until I did it. But, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, worst comes to worst, I should be talking to someone like I was talking to my grandma about uh, things went on. And so even people who were not at all versed to the stock market or the bond market and they uh, were able to get money, I was, I was uh, happy to be serving them and uh, making sure they understood as well as they could what was going on in their investment portfolios. And so I'm a major introvert, as you might imagine, with an accounting and statistics degree. But I taught myself that I had to learn how to market. And uh, you know, we could talk more about that. But it is important to understand what the most successful people in your field, what they're like and their skills that they have, and then try to have a complete set of skills. Now, I loved what you said about you didn't know you were good at it until you did it. And I think for yeah. so many of us, that's true, right? We have no idea um, until we're thrust into the deep end of the pool how well we can swim. And right. you know, and I, I think that's just such a beautiful takeaway for our listeners that you know it's worth a shot. You know, if you know in your heart that you're really interested in half a job, you know, maybe you're really good at the other half too, and you just aren't tried and true yet. Yeah, I, I think for most people, it's um, having the ability to think broadly about what causes success in whatever field they're in. And this is a field in, in which you have to have a wide range of skills because 
not only are you dealing with things that are very serious uh, to most of your clients, which is their money, and you're also doing things with the money that you have no control over. You don't have any control over the stock market or the bond market. It's not a manufacturing type of ability. And so because of all that, we're very good at with jargon and so on. So you have to learn how to translate that to people at different levels of knowledge. And I was fortunate that early on I could see that. And so... I did things that weren't natural for me that eventually allowed me to be successful. That's great. Now, you mentioned how marketing has changed in the face of technology, but how has the investment management piece changed? Because I would imagine that the technology, artificial intelligence, predictive modeling, uh, big data, deep analytics, that's all really had an impact on your work as well. Can you tell us a little about that? Oh, yes. Well, obviously, the use of computers has changed uh, the field significantly. Uh, when I was an intern in 1980, um, there was uh, one kind of personal computer on the whole floor of the Northern Trust in the research area, and I got to work on it. I, I had a programming uh, background um, in languages people don't care about anymore, like BASIC and FORTRAN, um, but I was able to I knew how those type of systems worked, and that's that's why they put me there. And so, you know, when no one had computers at their desks, you had one machine on the floor. That was your lifeline into what was going on in, in the market. And so it was slower. I think that would be the right word. The whole process uh, was slower. I'm not saying that was good or bad, but it, it was. And so as time has gone on, uh, the use of technology in all aspects, whether we're talking about the research side, the portfolio management side, trading, the technology has uh, ballooned. Um, I have uh, a little speech that I talk about um, in the 1950s where the first you know, fathers, and they were all men, of uh, the modern investment management were writing their PhD papers. Um, a lot of the times, the, the way they did what they did was because they didn't have computers and that your cell phone has uh, more computing power than all the computers at the University of Chicago um, at that time. And so it has made a huge difference. And because of that, again, this is this thing about being why, to the extent that you stay with the technology, but technology literate, show up with social media accounts, and in my case, uh, so that uh, even if you don't like it per se, it's just a reality of the business. And so you have to be proactive and be able to be on the front line of technology to the extent that you can. Absolutely. At age 60, I got an award of being one of the top 50 uh, bloggers among financial advisors by Investopedia. So, you know, if I could do that uh, at, at age 60, then anyone in the audience should be able to stay at the edge of their technology requirements. That is fantastic. And congratulations on your award. I know as a blogger myself, it is difficult. You know, even when we're dealing with facts and figures and research, it's difficult to put yourself out there in that way. And mm -hmm. the more introverted we are, the scarier that can be. And so I applaud you for, you know, stepping outside of probably what was your comfort zone at that time. Um, but it sounds yeah. like you're, you've been rewarded for it in many ways. 
So tell me, what's one of the things that when you were coming into this work, you maybe didn't expect or you had a misconception about that now that you're on the other side, right? Now that you're not working for the man, but you are the man that you've come to appreciate or that has surprised you now that you're on the inside. Well, everyone has bosses, so uh, I have a man also. Uh, But uh, it's part of what I've already mentioned. I didn't really appreciate how important marketing was in the investment management field. Certainly, when you see articles in a paper or on websites, whatever, it all looks like it's it's numbers and uh, manipulation thereof, research and you know trying to put together portfolios. But fortunately, early on, I learned that marketing is what makes the world go round, and it's and it certainly still it was the case in investment management, and it's still the case today. In fact probably more so than it was back then. And so I decided I have to learn how to be able to be out there. So I joined Toastmasters and did the Toastmasters route and became a competent Toastmaster, one of the designations, and was the president of my club at one point. And I did that solely. It wasn't really to help me a whole lot at that time. I was still a junior person, and I would go along on marketing trips, but I – I realized I was going to have to learn how to do it. And so it helped me a whole lot. And today, uh, I have to represent the firm in many venues. I've been on Fox Business News and Bloomberg Radio and so on. So you have to be able to look the part of uh, being competent and to be able to get your point across to the audience. And then, of course, just even in one-on-one presentations or in speeches, and if we could get this coronavirus out of the way, maybe I'll do speeches again. Uh, But uh, in any case, if you are not able to uh, succinctly and and directly be able to make your points, then people won't listen to you. So that was the biggest surprise to me. I love what you said about Toastmasters especially. I am such an advocate for people joining Toastmasters, starting Toastmasters clubs where they work, if they have a large enough company. It's good for so many reasons. It's good for, you know, organizing your thoughts. It's good for learning to be a leader, giving and receiving feedback in a graceful and generous way, networking with peers inside your company, outside your company, inside and outside your industry, learning about the things that other people do and the opportunities that might be available. There is just so much that happens in those meetings And it's hard to quantify all of that on the outside, right? If somebody hasn't experienced it for themselves. But I think, you know, if you really want to, one, grow in your career, you have to be comfortable speaking to groups of people. There's no role where you can lead effectively where you don't have to speak to groups of people confidently. Right. And number two, the leadership skills you can gain in that Toastmasters organization just in your local chapter, just by running a meeting or, you know, setting up an agenda, just those small steps toward leadership can have huge returns on our careers. And so it just, it thrills me to hear other professionals endorse Toastmasters because I think, I think there's no better um, experiential learning for the money for the time investment than Toastmasters. Yeah, no, it's very efficient. And it's very important that, especially if you're an introvert, that you learn, you know, maybe you're not going to go speaking or 
in, in, on broadcast media or whatever. But like you said, you're, you're going to, if you're a senior person in your firm, you're going to make presentations uh, both internally and externally. And it also helps as far as leading others. I think they have more confidence in you if you're able to express yourself well. And so uh, it, it's imperative that introverts do it. And uh, for me, at least, uh, and, and again, uh, we had a company a Toastmaster Club, and so it was relatively easy to do over lunch, and it was, it changed the trajectory of my career. Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to go back too to what you were saying about marketing. I know so many people who say, "I want my work to speak for itself, and I want to do a good job, and that should be enough." And I'm going to guess, Chuck, that you are of the opinion that you have to do good work, but doing good work in a dark room where no one knows you exist probably isn't going to get you very far. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I was going to say the work could speak for yourself, but if, if, if it's only uh, your ears or a few ears that hear it, it it's not going to uh, make the impact that it will otherwise. And really, this is all about impact. Impact that uh, the more that people are aware of your work and, and the more that it uh, tr helps drive the revenues of the organization you work for, then you get rewarded for that. That's just the way uh, it works. And so um, in order to have the maximum amount of impact, you have to be able to uh, show your work um, wherever you can and to whom, whomever you can, and then hope to, to get the return. If with social media, you know, I, I put a lot of stuff out there, and I never know which things are going to really hit or not. And last year on LinkedIn, I did an article on why uh, gold is a better diversifier than international bonds. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a nerdy thing. And I know that that was my number one article last year. And, and again, I think it's because not a lot of people had written about that. But, you know, you just never know. So unless you put yourself out there in many different ways, you don't have the opportunity to strike gold, so to speak, using what I just said, and, uh, you know, be able to have an impact on your clients or customers' lives. Absolutely. I think people need to understand that. And so I want to, I want to just restate a little bit what, what you said and, and sort of my take on it. A lot of us are taught, a lot of us growing up are taught, you know, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. I don't know if you ever heard that when you were a kid. I got that one a lot. Oh, yeah. Or stay in your place. Yep, stay in your place, right? Uh, you know, when I was, when I was growing heard. up as an African American, uh, that was used often. Mm. Uh, you know, don't don't try to get ahead of yourself. Yeah, um, and you know, as a woman, I got, or as a young woman, I got, um, you know, just be nice, just be nice, just yeah. be nice. All the time. <laughs> like, what does nice mean? Like, I, the, mm, I, I can't always be nice. Sometimes I have to tell the truth. Um, and, yeah. you know, and don't take up so much space. Like we get that a lot, right? As marginalized people, like we're supposed to fit in this tiny little box to make everybody else comfortable. And then what do they do? They say, well, you yeah. got to think outside the box. Well, I do that. And then you get, <laughs> mush me back down in there. So yeah, you want me in a box again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But so I want to be very clear about this because what I found is that for, you know, for folks who are marginalized in some way, be it because of race or ethnicity or gender or immigrant status or disability, you know, a lot of times we are kind of expected to, or, or rewarded for staying quiet 
and we sort of come right. up with this socialization that that we're supposed to be more humble than the average bear and you know so i'll hear from people well i just want my work to speak for itself i don't want to get places because of who i know and i say look if it's your work product all by itself against chad's work product social capital fraternity network sponsor yep. mentor boss you know his social media account him patting himself on the back him having five other chads patting him on the back right if your work alone is going up against all of that never like, make there's it. just no way you can compete and so yeah. we just you know like you said if we want to have the impact that we all know we can have because we're good at what we do people have to be able to see it yeah and and actually you're helping those people by giving them the options uh, to know what it is you can provide to them. And so the uh, financial uh, business, the, the investment management business, is a pretty cutthroat business. It's, it's, again, you know every day where you stand, and everyone else tends to know every day uh, of where you stand. So it's uh, important you know, that you're competent. But on, on the other hand, uh, you, you want the world to uh, want to gravitate to your work because you have the best uh, work that you know of. And, and that's, that's the way it's been uh, for me. I, I do a lot of other things, you know, hobbies and whatever. And on those things, I don't feel I have to be the best. It's just things that I enjoy. But for this, I want to be the best and I want other people to know that we're the best so that uh, they could take advantage of the great things we do. That's right, because when you're serving your customers and your clients at a higher level, you're not helping anybody if you keep that light hidden. Right, that's correct, yeah. Oh, yep. Chuck, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for just opening up on this this whole um, <laughs> conversation about, you know, about putting yourself out there. It's so important. In just the few minutes that we have left, I wanted to ask you, so as an African-American in the uh, financial services and investment management industry, where do you go for a sense of community? Well, uh, it's funny uh, because when I started in this business, I started in the bond side of the business as a fixed income person. And there were two institutional African-American fixed income persons in all of Chicago. Uh, oh, we, my you know, goodness. We knew who each other were. Um, and that's the way it was in the early 80s. It was very much a majority uh, business. Um, there, women had started to, to come in and made impacts. I worked for a woman that made major impacts at, at the Northern Trust. And so that was great. But, you know, the, there, were, there were only two African-Americans uh, in the whole investment group at the Northern Trust. And then there was only one other uh, bond guy. So uh, the, the people that are coming through today have so many more places of, of support. Uh, and those that want to uh, either be financial advisors or be involved in financial advisors can look to the Association of African-American Financial Advisors. Uh, it's A-A-A-F-A-I-N-C.org. And they um, have uh, great programs, um, a major convention every year this year is going to be in Washington, D.C., and um, uh, also a great program for young people that uh, want to uh, get into this business and and to get them uh, involved in the organization. When we run our conference, it's all 
uh, all, all the nitty gritty is done by college students that are studying financial planning. So that's where I go and I'm, I've been involved in many different levels. At one point I was on the board, but now I'm, I'm still involved in some committee things. And these days there are more and more organizations like that, that uh, you, you just got to find uh, where they are. And as African-American, it's, it's really a different experience to walk into the convention and, you know, 90% plus of your people are African-American used to being one or two or three um, that are there. So it's uh, people you can go back to when you have questions on um, what you should do. There's uh, probably someone else that has experienced that. So uh, looking for those organizations are, are important. And I know there are a lot of great women organizations and um, Hispanic, you know, to whatever interest group that you would like to associate with, uh, search out those groups. That is great advice. And it's, it's a common thread through these interviews that people find community in their associations, um, in the professional societies to which they belong. And, you know, I think it's important for young people and young professionals to know that these things exist. I spent so many years having no idea that these mm-hmm. things existed, that I could go to these meetings, that I could just show up and somebody would, you know, would hand me a cup of coffee and invite me to sit down. Like I had no clue for almost two decades of professional work that these things existed. And, you know, I'm not, I was a first generation college graduate. I mean, it, you know, so it was just, it was a lot of like just figuring out how the, how the world of work works. And I love that this is, this has come up in almost every interview. Just go to an association meeting, whatever it is, just show up because that's where you're going to find, you know, your people. Right, right. Whatever group it is. And, you know, even if you have to pay for yourself or take your own personal time, it's, it's so worthwhile. The network you build, um, we have 1900 people in our LinkedIn group uh, in that, in that association. And I feel that if I, you know, had to find someone in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I could uh, search through the group, find someone in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and call them up and and they would be happy uh, uh, to talk to me even though they don't know who I am and so that's great to have those connections when uh, uh, people who are historically marginalized may not have the kind of connections that uh, others have absolutely and you know mentors you know like on-site mentors right local um, mm-hmm. the mentors that we that we all should have at work are probably doing the best they can but for people from identities that have been marginalized, people from groups that are underrepresented, a lot of times those mentors come from um, a dominant culture perspective. Right. And right. their advice, while completely well-intentioned for the most part, often is not all that great, right? Because they're, they're coming at it from yeah. a certain perspective and they don't realize what works for them doesn't work for everybody else. Yeah, and, and in fact, that's a really interesting point because uh, you do have to sift through that advice uh, to determine uh, what what applies to you and and what doesn't apply to you. You don't always know what that is, and because they're on the inside, there are things that you should learn from uh, that advice. But but like you said, uh, having uh, your group to take the, those bits of advice and say, hey, that's, does it really work this way for us? I think is uh, very important. 
Absolutely. An example of that is that I think most African-Americans investment managers um, uh, don't like participating in casual days as much as being uh, dressed up. You see that I'm, I'm in a tie um, if, and I, I like working at a place that I have a tie. Um, and, and it's it's just one of those things that uh, you know, we try to uh, look the best that we can. And, and people in the majority group accept us more if we look uh, as professional as possible. So, you know, it's little things like that that, uh, that can make a difference. Yeah, and you guys can't see me, but I'm literally in sweats today on this call. So I feel a little <laughs> underdressed, I got to tell you. Uh, but I work from home. I don't work in a suit and tie office anymore. But, you know, it is true. I mean, I think that there are certain, you know, the policies that that are meant to be more inclusive sometimes end up backfiring on us because yeah. the policies exist, but they can only really be um, utilized by the majority or by, you know, by yeah. the power structure that's in place. And I think the dress code right. is a perfect example of that, right? If, you know, right. some of some of us can dress down more than others and still be taken yeah. seriously and seen as professional. And so thank you for pointing that out because I think that's something that's, that's probably lost on a lot of white folks in corporate America. Mm -hmm. um, certainly on a well, lot of- Well, and men too. Men. And, and men too. Uh, and that, you know, I think there's a reality that women- don't have the opportunity if they're a professional to uh, dress down as much as as men do because then otherwise they think you're you know someone's administrative assistant or, mm -hmm. or something like that so um yeah it, it it is something that you have to be very careful about uh and get advice from your group yeah absolutely i was actually told in a job one time that i would be more effective if i wore makeup so I was like, I really don't know what that has to do with it, but okay. Um, and the sad thing was that I wasn't told that directly. I was told that indirectly uh, because my oh. boss had told someone else that I would be more effective if I wore makeup. I like, oh, wow. Sometimes wow. I don't yeah. wear makeup. I'll go, I'll go years at a time without yeah. wearing makeup. And then, I'll get in a, and then I'll get in a zone where it's like, that's, I, I won't leave the house without it. But none of that should hinge on what my boss thinks I should be doing with my face. So Exactly. But, it, but you know. That's, that's just one of those realities. And, yeah. uh, and, and you do, and, and you have to make a decision. Am I going to um, just stick to my guns no matter what? Or are there some things that, I, that I'll do, even if it's not what I really want to do, because I want to get to the top. I yeah. want to break the seal. And, you know, it, it's just part of being, um, you know, not in the, in the majority group. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's good to have a place where we can be honest about those kinds of trade-offs because mm -hmm. they are real. They have a huge impact. Um, you know, they, they impact not just our financial potential, our earning potential, but they also impact our ourselves, right? And our, our feeling of our sense of own our own integrity, uh, whether yep. we're showing up authentically. And so, you know, yep. I think it's, I, I think this is where those associations come in, right? Because then you can have conversations with people who are experiencing that too and say, look, I really, you know, I want to show up the way I am, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I can do that in this environment. What does that right. look like? And how do I balance right. that? And how do I, you know, how do I get my head around, you know, what's right and what's wrong in this situation? Chuck Self, thank you so much. This was such a rich and oh. rewarding conversation. And I am so thankful um, that we hit each other's radar and we were able to make this happen. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you, Amy. It's been very, very fun, and hopefully uh, we were able to talk about some subjects that are going to be of interest. So yeah, and hopefully we found some, some young numbers people who cannot wait to join <laughs> Toastmasters so they can get in line <laughs> for your succession plan. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them. All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Yo, Amy, that was a great conversation with Chuck. I'm curious, like, what stuck out to you the most as you think back about that conversation that you had? Well, you know, this guy's got three job titles at iSectors. He's chief operating officer, chief investment officer, and chief compliance officer. And I guess I didn't realize that chief operating officer meant president. I mean, this guy's running the show over there. And I think that's really cool for people to know that here's a company where, you know, Chuck's the dude, right? <laughs> And I just I think it's awesome that that we have access to the insights and to the experiences of people who are doing, you know, not just amazing work, but at the highest levels. I agree. I think one thing I continue to be impressed by and encouraged by is seeing folks that look like me in these highly, highly, highly powerful, influential space, roles. Right. And the thing about it is, like you just said, like Chuck, he holds these officer positions, like three of them. Uh, like that's power. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of formal power. Yeah. And it's a ton of influential, uh, informal power when it comes to just how he navigates in these spaces. It's the insights that he holds. That's just a lot of competency to, just to to wield. Right. At the same time. And I'm curious about even you know, maybe one day we could have him back to kind of delve into how those various competencies, like how he's able to, how they feed into each other, right? Mm -hmm. How does him being the CIO, the COO, and the chief compliance officer, there have to be like some significant challenges with that. Those are big roles. Absolutely. But you know what really gets to me about that though, is what must it be like to be an employee in that organization and specifically, you know, a black or brown employee at iSectors knowing that the guy running the show at your financial services company looks like you, right? Because it's one thing to sit where we right. sit and say, wow, that's really cool. Like, you know, that's something I could aspire to. But what does it feel like on day one when you're getting, you know, orientation in the new company and you see the org chart and you see Chuck right at the top? I mean, I really can't imagine that. I've never experienced that in my career. And I would say what's cool about the discussion with Chuck and the folks that we have on here is that, you know, my, my hope and my, my real expectation is, is that Chuck and others like him are actually lifting as they climb. Right. Like, it's not like, Oh, I see you up there, but like, I'll never be able to talk to you or, you know, I really can't engage you for real advice or I can't, you know, not someone I can, who can really help me because I'm going to tell you, if I had to choose between seeing somebody that looked like me, that was up there, but who didn't care about me, or just seeing a white person up there, I'd rather just, just, just rather see the white person because emotionally, oh no, it's just the, the letdown is like really, really real. Like, and we talk about this a lot, like within black uh, spaces around just like, man, it hurts when you see somebody and you think, oh yeah, because you know, like you look like me. So, and there's only like four of us here. So, of course, you're going to care. It's like, eh, maybe not. Um, but with that being said, like shout out to Chuck, um, really good conversation, Amy. Great job. 
Thank you so much. And I want to invite the listeners, if you enjoy the show, if you want to support Living Corporate, the best way to do that is tell a friend about us. And another way is to head over to your podcast app, Apple, you know, iTunes, podcast, whatever you use, and give us a five-star rating and review because this helps new people find us and it helps build this podcast community so more people can be inspired by stories like Chuck's. Y'all heard it here. Y'all heard it from Amy. Uh, Shout out to you, Amy. Shout out to Chuck. Uh, and uh, we'll catch y'all next time. Peace. Keep climbing. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.